Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would invite you to open with me to, to John chapter 12. I think there are, there are times where we as, as Christians are so familiar with the Bible uh, and, and with the, the Scriptures that, w- that we don't think and, and reflect of uh, how, uh, how a book of the Bible would have uh, initially come across uh, to, to the original audience. And, and even as we've been studying through the Gospel of John, just re- reflecting upon what was, what was John the Apostle uh, seeking to do? Now, he, he's writing uh, a, a type of biography. Right? He's writing an account of someone's life, and he's, he's, he's writing to convince other people to believe in this someone. But what's remarkable is that John, a, a Jew, is writing to other Jews and writing to, to Gentiles, seeking to, to convince them that they should believe in Jesus. Well, we've talked about that over and over again, but realize that there's a there's a, an objection lurking out there that someone could raise right john you're trying to write to convince me to believe in jesus uh, that, that he is the jewish messiah but the jews didn't even accept him so, so why should i accept and believe that jesus is the jewish messiah if the jewish people rejected him now, that requires some explaining. How could they reject him if he really is the Son of God, if he really is uh, the one who, who came to, to save them? How, how could they reject him? And uh, they didn't reject him uh, w- with apathy. It's not like Jesus came onto the scene and they just didn't care. Right? That, that would be one form of rejection. They also uh, didn't uh, reject him uh, in an apologetic way. Like, hey, you know what? You make some good points, but I just I don't really be- think that you're convincing me. They weren't apathetic in their rejection. They weren't apologetic in their rejection. They were uh, antagonistic in their rejection. Because what did they do? They said, we don't believe you. Not only that, we're going to kill you. You can't stick around here. But this is the one that the Apostle John is holding up for everybody else to accept. So so there has to be some type of an explanation. How can the Jewish Messiah come to the Jews, present himself to him, be rejected by them, and then we should believe in him? And in this this last portion of John 12 that, that we're coming to, John is going to to make an an apologetic for that. He's going to uh, defend the the case of why we should believe in Jesus. He's going to explain why the nation of Israel rejected Jesus and why we should believe in him. And here in in John 12, uh, we're coming to about the, the midway point of John's gospel, uh, and we're coming to to a portion. Uh, the, the dividing line really is at the beginning of John chapter 13. So we just have a few more verses to go. But 
John 13 uh, is going to, to start the, the second portion of the book. Uh, and uh, th- this first portion that we've been studying through emphasizes Jesus' uh, public ministry. He comes and he presents himself to the nation of Israel. Uh, he says, here I am, I am the, the, your Messiah. Uh, and uh, he's going to proclaim God's message. He's going to perform miracles. Uh, and ultimately, as, as we have seen, the nation rejects him. Uh, And as we get into John 13 uh, through 21, we're going to see his ministry completely refocus. Uh, He's going to to spend a lot of time uh, with his disciples. He's only got a couple of days left, uh, but John 13 through 17 is going to focus upon Jesus' final evening with uh, the 12 disciples. Then we're going to see his his arrest, his trial, his, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. Uh, and so that the first portion of John's gospel is known as the, the book of signs. Uh, and what we're going to uh, be looking at in the future, 13 through 21, is the book of glory. But over and over again, in this first portion of John's gospel, we, we see the, the unbelief of the people of Israel. Uh, and yes, there's a, a sprinkling in here and there uh, of uh, those who believe, uh, of those who have faith in Christ. But uh, even the, sometimes the faith that we have seen in John's gospel has not been uh, genuine saving faith. Uh, if you turn back to, to John chapter 2, the end of John 2, it says, now, we, when he was in Jerusalem, verse 23, at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. And when they saw his signs, which he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. There's a, there's a play on words there. It's, that says, they believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. Because their faith, uh, they liked the, the supernatural miracles that he was doing. But they didn't like the rest of his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But then later in, in John chapter 6, uh, many of his disciples abandoned him when his teaching w- was difficult to follow. The end of John 6, we see uh, him, after many depart, uh, he speaks in v- verse 66, he's speaking to the twelve. And as a result of this, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go? And I love Simon Peter's response. The Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. But, but that, that's the story of John's gospel through this first portion. Now, a lot of people will give lip service to Jesus. Yeah, we believe in him. Oh, wait, that's, that's kind of hard to follow. Let's, let's not do this anymore. Coming to even to John chapter 12, where we've been looking the last few weeks, uh, the, the triumphal entry. They, they welcome Jesus with, with open arms, but he is not uh, w- what they want him to be. So they're going to be greatly disappointed, and ultimately he is going to be crucified. And uh, this, this final section in John 12, verses 37 uh, to 50, uh, is going to explain how, how the nation of Israel could, could reject the long-awaited-for Messiah, the Messiah that they had been waiting for and expecting for a long time, finally arrived and they rejected him. And John's going to explain why that is. And, and verses 37 through 50 uh, in John chapter 12 are what we might say a parenthetical 
uh, paragraph, and they are in excursus. Uh, this is the Apostle John giving an, an overview and a summary uh, of the first half of the, uh, the book. Uh, and uh, we're, we're going to look at this over the course of, of multiple weeks, and there's multiple parts to this explanation of unbelief. But what I want to zero in on this morning is verses 37 through 41 uh, in John 12. If you would look with me at those. But though he had done so many signs before them, they still were not believing in him. So that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and return, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke about him. Let's pause and pray. Father, we, we acknowledge that you are the divine author of all of Scripture. Uh, and we come to your word now seeking to hear from you. Uh, asking that you would uh, give us uh, eyes to see and hearts to understand. Uh, to behold your son. And to behold you. I pray that you would work in and through our study of your word this morning. That you would draw uh, our affections and our attentions upward. And that you would help us to behold you in all of your splendor and all of your glory. And use this to conform us into the image of your son. In whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as we study these verses this morning, we're going to see the Apostle John uh, explaining the unbelief uh, of his own generation. Uh, and he's going to explain it from the Old Testament. He's going to say, let me, let me explain uh, Jewish unbelief in his own time by pointing to the prophet Isaiah. Uh, and he's also going to give scriptural support to show uh, that the Messiah was going to be rejected. And this was prophesied and expected by God, and it was also a result of human sinfulness. And as we study this passage as 21st century followers of Christ, here's what we need to keep in mind. What we're going to see is there is a balance between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And we're going to get a glimpse into the, the ways and purposes of God in this passage. We're going to see how he works and why he works. Uh, we're going to see how uh, we operate as human beings and how God interacts with us. Again, striving to, to answer, how could uh, the Jewish people not believe in Jesus? And that answer is going to also have implications for how can people today still uh, reject Jesus? And we're going to see answers. And as we study this, and we're going to see that John makes an initial thesis statement. Uh, and then he's going to uh, explain uh, and prove that statement. And then he's going to, to unfold the implications of that statement. And, and his initial statement is found in verse 37. You could say the, the statement of Israel's unbelief. He says, but though he had done so many signs before them, they still were not believing in him. Uh, and there's an emphasis here that, that John is making upon uh, the quantity uh, of Jesus' miracles, even though he did so many signs among them. Uh, and John's gospel in, in the, the book of signs, we, we saw uh, seven miracles that Jesus performed. Uh, and uh, at the end of the gospel, he says, there were so many more. If I were going to write them down, it would fill all of, all of the books in the world. 
Now, and so there is an emphasis upon the, the quantity of miracles that Jesus performed during his ministry, and there is an emphasis upon uh, the quality of those miracles. Now, uh, that Jesus performed miracles, uh, he healed uh, people, and they continued to be healed. He raised Lazarus from the dead, not for like a split second, uh, but Lazarus is eating and drinking and is a tremendous testimony for uh, everything that Jesus claims to be. And all of these miracles that he performs specifically point to the fact that he is who he says he is. All right, John 9, when he heals a man who's born blind, uh, his opponents are even saying, like, this has never happened before in all of human history. We're dealing with something brand new here. Uh, and then he, raising Lazarus from the dead. Uh, who is able to do that but God? And, and the emphasis here is that the, despite the quantity and the quality of Jesus' miracles, the people of Israel still refused to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. They, they were not believing, and the Greek tense there shows that it's a repeated, uh, stubborn, and continuous refusal. Right? They had all of this evidence, but they, they chose to suppress it. Uh, they chose to, to throw it out, to disregard it. And the emphasis here is upon human responsibility. Uh, This is an indictment against uh, the nation of Israel. He's saying they are guilty. Uh, With all of this evidence before them, they are guilty of rejecting the Messiah who who came to them. Now, after, after three years of walking with the Son of God, after hearing Him teach and seeing Him perform miracles, what conclusion did they come to? We need to kill him. And, and this is the final indictment against the, the nation here in John's gospel. And, and it's held up uh, in all of its ugliness. And see, un- unbelief is not a, uh, not a misfortune that we suffer. It's not an affliction that we uh, experience. Unbelief is a sin to be condemned. D.A. Carson puts it this way, failure to believe stems from a moral failure to recognize the truth, not from want of evidence, but from willful neglect or the distortion of the evidence. John Piper puts it this way, unbelief is the root of evil and the essence of evil. All our sinning grows out of unbelief in the living God and what he has said to us in Scripture. I love what J.C. Ryle says. He says, who can tell the misery that unbelief has brought on the world? He said, unbelief made Eve eat the forbidden fruit. She doubted the truth of God's word. You will surely die. Unbelief made the world reject Noah's warning and so perish in their sin. Unbelief kept Israel in the wilderness. It was the barricade that kept them from entering the promised land. Unbelief made the Jews crucify the Lord of glory. They did not believe the voice of Moses and the prophets, and even though they were read to them every day, and unbelief is the reigning sin in man's heart down to this very hour. Unbelief in God's promises, unbelief in God's wrath and discipline, unbelief in our own sinfulness, unbelief in our own danger, unbelief in everything that runs counter to the pride and worldliness of our evil hearts. This is in an indictment against the the nation of Israel, yes, but it's also an indictment against humanity. And this indictment against Israel is a warning to us about the seriousness of unbelief. 
Unbelief is something that we must set ourselves against uh, individually as Christians and corporately as a church. We set ourselves against the unbelief of the world around us by proclaiming the gospel, by calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus, the Son of God who lived and died for sinners. And we set ourselves against unbelief in the church as well by encouraging one another and warning each other. Listen to, listen to Hebrews chapter 3. It says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The unbelief is something that we must set ourselves against. And if we don't, it's going to gradually harden our hearts. Uh, And that is what we see on display in John's gospel. That unbelief is an active choice of rejecting Jesus. Even as we've been studying the book of Proverbs, the foundational verse, the foundational principle is what? Yeah, the the fear of the Lord is the, the, the beginning of wisdom. But later on in chapter 1, it says they did not choose the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a choice. Faith in Christ is a choice, but unbelief isn't neutral. Unbelief is also a choice. Uh, And the nation of Israel made an active choice of rejecting Jesus. That is the indictment made against Israel here. That is the the thesis statement that that John is now going to to explain and to unfold. Verses 38 to 40, this is the explanation of Israel's unbelief. Verse 38 says, So that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. And then he he quotes uh, two passages in uh, Isaiah. Uh, The first passage that he's going to quote there in verse uh, 38 uh, is going to be Isaiah 53, 1. And and, uh, the the quotation there is is very important, but also what's very important is the the very beginning of that verse. Uh, The first word, so that. A single word uh, there uh, in the Greek, and it's a, it's a, a conjunction that expresses uh, purpose, uh, that, that expresses why something took place. Uh, and when you, when you put this in with verse 37, so remember the emphasis is upon the human responsibility. They were not believing. They were rejecting the Messiah who came to them. But this was purpose. This, so, this took place so that the word of Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled. And he quotes Isaiah 53, 1. He says, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is one of the the servant songs in Isaiah. And uh, you have the the prophet speaking to God. uh, And he is expressing astonishment to God. And what is the prophet's astonishment? That nobody is believing in the suffering servant that God sent. He says, how is it that nobody uh, could, could hear and believe our report? How could it be that nobody uh, would hear and receive the message of the suffering servant? When he comes, how can nobody ex- ex- hear him and receive his report? And also, uh, even though the arm of the Lord has been revealed in the miracles that the suffering servant performed, nobody receives him in faith. And the prophet understood this, and he's expressing astonishment. 
And the Apostle John is pointing back to that and saying, look, Isaiah the prophet knew this was going to take place. Isaiah the prophet looked, looked ahead, and Isaiah 53 is about the cross. It is about the crucifixion. And in that very context, Isaiah is saying, how could they not believe? How could they reject? But this shows that Israel's rejection of the Messiah was not only expected, it was predicted, it was prophesied. And it shows that this was to fulfill Scripture. So John the Apostle points to Isaiah 53.1. Then he also points to another verse. In verses 39 and 40, he quotes Isaiah 6.10. But John's quote is, is slightly different from both the Hebrew and the, the Greek Old Testament. And John emphasizes God's actions and the effects that come to bear upon the people. Look at what God has done in verse 39. For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah had said again, He, God, has blinded their eyes, and He, God, hardened their hearts. And there's four results of that, four purposes to the two divine actions. And specifically four things that would not happen because God blinded and hardened. They would not see, they would not understand, they would not turn around inwardly, meaning they would not repent, and they would not be healed. Now if you think about that, that, this is a very strong statement. Because the Apostle John is seeking to explain Israel's unbelief by saying this is exactly what God intended. And God hardened their hearts. It's a big statement, but, but this is what John quotes to prove his point. Now I think it's helpful to, to go back to Isaiah 6, if you, if you turn there with me, to understand like this is a strong statement in John's time, and it was actually a very strong statement in Isaiah's time as well. Uh, Isaiah chapter 6 is a profound uh, and very, very important chapter uh, in all of the Bible. And if we we look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, we see when all of this is taking place. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up with the train of his robe filling the temple. What this tells us is this is at the very uh, beginning of Isaiah's prophetic ministry. And he was a, he was a prophet uh, to the southern kingdom of Judah for, uh, I think, close to 60 years. And, and this is his commission to ministry. And his ministry begins with this uh, vision of the, the heavenly throne room in 739 B.C. And he sees the glory of Yahweh in this vision. If you look at verses 2 through 4. And seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. Now with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called out. And while the house of God was filling with smoke. So if you kind of put that vision into your own mind's eye, how amazing that would have been, and also feeling the, the, the shaking. Uh, and you see Isaiah's response in verses 5 through 7. 
Isaiah sees the glory of God and, and understands the holiness of God. It's being announced to him by these six uh, angelic beings. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. He realizes this is a, this is a bad situation that he is in. Unholy man in the presence of holy God. But because he, he recognizes that, look and see what happens. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Because Isaiah rightly understood his sinfulness and God's holiness, God was willing to cleanse and forgive him. But then look at verses 8 through 10. This is what Isaiah is being commissioned to do as a prophet. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not know. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. And then I said, how long? And he said, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people and the land is devastated to desolation. And Yahweh has removed men far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or like an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. It's amazing. God says, who are we going to send? Isaiah says, send me. And then I think if he had known the details ahead of time, maybe he wouldn't have volunteered because he gets the details afterwards. What am I to do, God? Go and speak to these people who are never going to listen to you. They're going to have hard hearts and, and encourage them in that hardness. Now, that's the command. Go tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not know. And Isaiah is just overwhelmed at this. Okay, so how, how long do I have to do this for? Verse 11. Till the land is devastated. Till they're taken away in exile. And this is, this is a very important passage. There are, there are very few things that are in all four of the Gospels. I mentioned that before. Uh, uh, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. That's in all four of the Gospels. The, the triumphal entry, that's in all four of the, the Gospels. Uh, the cross and the resurrection is in all four of the Gospels. And in all four of the Gospels, this passage in Isaiah 6 is quoted and alluded to. Additionally, this this passage is also uh, quoted by uh, the Apostle Paul uh, at the end of uh, Acts. Uh, And he he points to this passage saying, this is why the gospel is going forth to the Gentiles. This is why salvation is going to the nations. uh, Because uh, the Jews and Israel have rejected the Messiah. Paul quotes it again in Romans 11.8. 
very important chapter. It explains that God's plan, uh, God planned Israel's unbelief and he used their unbelief and their rejection of the Messiah to bring the gospel to the entire world. Listen to Romans 11.25. Showing that, yes, Israel rejected the Messiah, but it's not a permanent condition of their rejection. He says, for I do not want you to, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be uh, wise in your own estimation. Now, that there is a partial hardening that happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, there, there's a, a hardening of Israel uh, that God is uh, working. But when, when we deal with something like this, there's some really big questions that, that come up, right? How could, how could God cause Israel to reject the Messiah that he sent to them? Right? How can he say that they are guilty if he's the one who's, who's hardening? A few things uh, about that. Again, a point back to uh, multiple occasions throughout John's Gospel that we have studied and seen uh, the tension that resides between uh, man's responsibility and divine sovereignty. Uh, that the two go hand in hand and uh, they, they, they keep us on edge uh, and they keep us from falling into uh, pits on either side. If you emphasize uh, divine sovereignty too much and, and you uh, neglect or push aside man's responsibility, you kind of end up with a determinism. We just throw up our hands, oh, nothing matters. It doesn't matter what I do. We don't want to end up there. But on the other side, if you uh, err too much and lean too much towards man's uh, freedom and responsibility, then you, you neglect uh, God's role in salvation. And salvation is something that we do and not something that God does for us. And so verse 37 emphasized human responsibility. Uh, and verses 38 through 40 here in John 12 emphasize God's sovereignty. So there's a balance here. But also, additionally, God's hardening of a human heart is not uh, a a manipulation of a morally pure being or even a morally neutral being. God's hardening of a heart comes uh, as a condemnation against those who have repeatedly rejected him already. I'll quote J.C. Ryle again. He says, this is no doubt a very solemn and awful subject. It seems at first to make God the author of man's destruction. But surely a moment's reflection will show us that God is a sovereign in punishing and may punish in any way that he pleases. And some he cuts off suddenly the moment they sin. Others he gives over to judicial blindness and ceases to strive with their consciences. Those whom uh, he is said to harden and blind will always be found to be persons whom he had previously warned, exhorted, and constantly summoned to repent. And never is he said to harden and blind and give men up to judicial hardness and blindness till after a long course of warnings. And this was certainly the case with Pharaoh and with the Jews. If you think of the context of what we're looking at here in uh, in John chapter 12, just a couple verses ago, what was Jesus doing? What was his final proclamation to the nation? Look to me. Come, follow me and become sons of light. He's there pleading with him. Uh, and that's the, the culmination of years of ministering to them and calling them to faith. God's sovereignty over the human heart is also a reason for comfort. Because, uh, because God is sovereign, we can have hope. Right? We can have hope that we ourselves can change. Uh, if God wasn't sovereign over our sinful hearts, we would just be stuck without any hope. 
Uh, it's the sovereignty of God that allows us to turn to Him and say, Help. Transform me. That, again, that's the beauty of the gospel. Uh, that God gives us a new nature. He gives us a new heart. Uh, transforming our desires and our affections. Uh, because He is sovereign, we have hope and comfort for change. And we are able to even go and appeal to Him to change and transform others. Right? Is there any point in praying if God is not sovereign over the human heart? No. But we do pray because we know that He is sovereign and He is able to transform. Also, in His sovereignty, God is able to use how many things for good? All things. Uh, and this is Paul's argument in uh, Romans 11. He says that God used Israel's rejection of the Messiah to bring salvation to us as Gentiles. I'm going to quote from Romans 11 again. He's, the Apostle Paul says, I say then that they, speaking of Israel, did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. And now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch that uh, then I, as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Paul works from, from lesser to greater. He says, look, if, if the Jewish rejection of the Messiah meant that the, the whole world would get to hear uh, the news of the gospel, as, someone, as one pastor put it, uh, Israel's rejection of the Messiah uh, made Christianity a worldwide religion. It is now something that can go to the entire uh, world, to the ends of the earth. Uh, we go and proclaim Christ and make disciples uh, because the Jews first rejected and God is going to, when they finally believe, it's going to be even greater. I almost get goosebumps every time I read that passage in Romans 11. Of how uh, magnificent and amazing it's going to be when Israel turns to their Messiah in faith. Uh, which is also Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is future Israel looking back and realizing what they did. That their profession of faith. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So much there. And I know we've kind of led us out into the, the deep end of the theological swimming pool here, and some of you didn't have your floaties on, but, uh, but, but it's, this is where the text takes us. And who is sufficient to, to swim or tread water here for, for too long? But the Apostle Paul, even after you uh, he wrote chapters 9, 10, and 11, really rich theological chapters on uh, how should we view and understand Israel and their rejection of, of the Messiah and how God is, is working with them. Paul concludes with this in Romans 11. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became His counselor or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Certain truths, as we contemplate them, we, we see uh, the richness, the, the gravity, and the glory of God. And we see how small we are. And this is one of those theological topics. The Apostle John puts forth his, his thesis 
Israel is guilty because they have not believed in Jesus as the Messiah, then he, then he explains from the Old Testament how this was predicted and expected, and that God's role in it. And then uh, there's an even bigger implication that he's going to, to draw out in verse 41 in John chapter 12. Is it the implication of Israel's unbelief. It says, These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. And he spoke about him. Well, what's the implication there? We, we went back and read Isaiah 6. And the Apostle John is now saying, what you read in Isaiah 6, what Isaiah saw as he's looking at the, the throne room of God, he saw who? He saw Christ. He saw Jesus. The implication is that when the nation of Israel is rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, they are rejecting God himself. It is a package deal. Isaiah saw the vision of the glory of Christ, and Isaiah understood that the glory of the Messiah as uh, the suffering servant of Yahweh. And the implication of this is, is profound. Since Jesus is himself God, you cannot reject God and worship him. You cannot reject Jesus and then think to have a relationship with the Father. Worship of Jesus and, and God the Father are inseparable. You get both or you get none. To reject the Son is to reject the Father. He who does not honor the Son, John 5.23, does not honor the Father who sent him. Dads, how do you feel if someone comes up to you and says, I hate your son, but I like you? Right? That makes you draw near to that person, but not in joy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's the reality here. That's the implication. That's why John throws that in. So, oh, yeah, by the way, Isaiah saw Christ, and that's the one who you're rejecting. They were showing, Israel was showing that they had completely rejected God and they had begun to, to worship their own form of religious tradition. And all of this just heightens the indictment against Israel that was announced in verse 37. So we come, we come full circle. This indictment is made, it's, it's proven and demonstrated from the Old Testament and the implication unfolds. They, they have rejected God himself. But there's some additional layers to this as well. See, the, the Apostle John is, is building a, a bridge. Now, that's what a New Testament author is doing uh, when they're quoting in the Old Testament. They're, they're building a bridge from Old Testament times to their present time. So let's, let's think about what, what John is doing here. Okay, he, he is, he's building a bridge between the sins of Israel during Isaiah's time and he's building it and connecting it to his contemporary time to show a connection between Israel's sins then and Israel's sins during the time of the life of Christ. And the language of Isaiah quoted uh, in John's Gospel here is a very particular kind of language with, with great theological significance. One theologian puts it this way. It says, Whenever the organs of spiritual perception, the eye, the ear, the heart, were seen to be non-functioning, a certain kind of language was used. We might call it uh, sensory organ malfunction language. And when this language was used in the Old Testament, almost without exception, it refers not just to sinners in general, but to only one particular kind of sin. 
the sin of idol worship. And throughout Isaiah, uh, both idols and idol worshipers are described as being deaf and blind uh, because uh, idols uh, don't have eyes that work or ears that work. Right? They're made out of wood or metal. And for idolaters, this is true because they become, we become like what we worship. Listen to Psalm 135. The idols of the nations are but silver and gold and the work of man's hands. And they have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. And those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. And so this, this is the, the bridge that the Apostle John is building. He says, in Isaiah's time, God offered salvation to the nation of Israel. Not through good works, but by uh, acknowledging and looking in faith to the God who was able to cleanse them, just like Isaiah was cleansed. But they did not have ears to hear or eyes to see or hearts to understand because they had uh, worshipped idols and they became like what they worshipped. And because their sensory organ malfunctioned, they missed salvation and instead they were judged by God for their unbelief. So John is saying, this is what took place in Isaiah's time. Now here's a bridge to the life of Christ. During Jesus' time, God offered salvation to the nation of Israel, not through good works, but by looking to Jesus in faith uh, and relying upon uh, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection from the dead. But during Jesus' time, the nation of Israel did not have eyes to see or hearts to understand because they had become blind and deaf because they weren't bowing down uh, to idols made of gold and wood, but they were bowing down to an idol of human tradition. We're going to see this more next week. Some people believed in Jesus, but they were afraid of getting thrown out of the synagogue. And the synagogue became more important than looking to God in faith. And because of their sensory organ malfunction, they missed salvation and were instead judged by God for their unbelief. That's what the Apostle John does. Isaiah's time to the time of Jesus and and John. And now we might do this. Let's build a bridge from John's time to our time. God offers salvation to the world, not through good works, but through his son. who, Who lived and died for sinners. And everyone who looks to Jesus in faith will be forgiven, will be cleansed. Our iniquities taken away, just like Isaiah. But do we have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand? Will we receive that message or will we reject that message? Are we suffering from sensory organ malfunction because we are bowing down to created things rather than the creator? Are we missing the message because we have become like the things uh, in the world that we have been worshiping? we are dull of hearing. Will we believe the promises of Jesus in faith or will we not? That is what uh, the bridge brings us to in our own time. This is, this is the reality of sin and false worship. This is what it will do. And if you look at verse 40, there is a, a subtle description of unbelief. Right? Unbelief is equal to what? Not seeing not understanding, not turning, and not being healed. You took the inverse of that, 
What does salvation look like? What does faith look like? What does faith lead to? Faith is seeing who Jesus is. Sin, or Faith is understanding what Jesus has claimed, what he has done. Faith is turning. And what's the, the end result? Being healed. That is the truth of the gospel, and that is what John is explaining. This is why the nation of Israel rejected the Messiah. But this is also why you and I should believe in the Messiah, even though he was rejected by his own people. That's what John the Apostle is presenting to us here. And each one of us has to make a conclusion. We have to come to a decision. Will we look to Jesus in faith? Uh, acknowledging our sinfulness and our need for him to cleanse us? Or will we say, no, I don't need that. I'm good with my own ritual. I'm good with my own tradition. I'll continue to pursue my own idols. And the results are laid out for us here in John's Gospel. Something to think about this week. Many things to think about, but this is the most important thing that you have to think about this week. Nothing else comes close. And I know it's heavy, I know it's theologically deep, but these are the things that we need to wrestle with. And these are the, the, the questions that, we, uh, that come up in our own study. These are the questions that others may, may ask you. Uh, and now you have a, a greater understanding of Scripture. Uh, and you see, God is sovereign, but what do we still need to do? We still need to respond.